Our text for today comes from uh, 1 Samuel 7, the first 15 verses, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Uh, hear these words. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard... The people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, one of my favorite Old Testament narratives from 1 Samuel 7. Um, it is beautifully told. It is filled with tension and suspense. Um, it is part of an unofficial collection of narratives throughout the Old Testament um, about these last-minute uh, supernatural deliverances in which God acts uh, on behalf of his people in, in such an unmistakable way. Um, and one of the things that all these kinds of stories tend to have in common is that uh, they teach us about repentance. All right, now repentance is one of those words that uh, for those of us who grew up uh, around church, um, we've been around this word our whole lives. We've heard it a lot. We've probably never thought a lot about it. But if you 
didn't grow up around church. I, I spent some time trying to think of what would a what is a non-biblical, non-sort of churchy reference to repentance uh, look like? And really, the only thing that came to mind was, uh, you know, like one of those uh, cartoon doomsday prophets with a placard that says, uh, you know, repent, the end is nigh. Um, and if that's if that's your only exposure to the word, um, then I can I can appreciate that it's confusing or, or that it might even make you uncomfortable. Um, because it frames repentance merely as a way of escaping the wrath of an angry God. Now, I mean, theologically speaking, there, there is an element of truth to that, of course, but there's so much more to repentance than that, right? To repent literally means to turn back. And you may be asking to turn back from what? Well, uh, Biblical, the biblical call to repentance is a call to turn back from the path that you are on because it leads to your own destruction. So it is a loving warning. It is a life-giving call. You see, true repentance is critical for human flourishing. And we're going to get more into that later, but obviously today I hope to preach to you on the topic of repentance. And I hope to do that uh, under three points or three headings, I guess. Uh, first, the necessity of repentance. Second, the anatomy of repentance. And third, the promise of repentance. Okay, so the necessity, the anatomy, and the promise of repentance. All right, so firstly, the necessity of repentance. You know, as our text opens, we see Israel in lament. Why are the Israelites lamenting after the Lord, we ask? Um, in order to understand this, we actually have to back up a little bit, um, as is often the case. This is a larger block of narrative, and it can't be isolated from the rest. Um, but I'll be brief. Uh, the book of Samuel picks up where the book of Judges leaves off with this ominous phrase uh, that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Um, you see, Israel lacked qualified leadership. And, and we've talked about this many times at GBC. You know, as go the leaders, so go the people, right? And so they lacked qualified leaders. And the leaders that they did have thought it would be a good idea to drag the Ark of the Covenant, right? This, this very holy, very sacred symbol of God's presence among his people, they decided to drag that into an unsanctioned battle where they didn't consult with the Lord at all. And they tried to use it to manipulate God, essentially, into acting as their personal super weapon to defeat their enemies. Um, now, predictably, uh, that whole priestly family died and the Ark was captured by the Philistines. Okay, And the pregnant wife of one of those priests, a man named Phineas, um, his wife went into labor when she heard that the ark had been captured and she actually died giving birth to her child and lived just long enough to name her child Ichabod, which in Hebrew means the glory is gone. You see, Israel had strayed from God for so long now that he finally let them have their way. He withdrew his presence and his favor from them and let them do what they wanted. And it led to pure misery. And so Israel is lamenting after the Lord, right? They were meant to be his people. 
right? They were, the Lord was supposed to dwell with them. Uh, this land was their promised inheritance, right? It was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, right? But instead, they're living here at the mercy of their oppressors. You know, the Philistines had taken over a number of their uh, important and strategically located cities and had disarmed the Israelites. Um, the Israelites weren't even allowed to have weapons or blacksmiths even. Um, we, we read this elsewhere in Samuel that that was one of the Philistine tactics is that uh, if, the, if the Israelites even needed to sharpen tools, they would have to go to one of these uh, Philistine strongholds and use their blacksmiths to sharpen their tools. Um, and this, of course, was to, to thwart any possibility of any kind of a, a uprising or revolt. Um, and so they were functionally slaves in their own land. How could this possibly be? How did they arrive at this place? God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, right, miraculously, and led them into this promised land, and now they find themselves enslaved again. Well, they failed to obey God. You know, when they came into the promised land, they were told to drive out these people, not to get lazy or complacent, but to drive out their enemies. Um, and of course they didn't, right? They, they drove out just enough to make room for themselves. And then they decided to get comfortable with their neighbors and decided that they could all live together peacefully. Now, the Philistines were smart and they just bided their time, right? And they slowly began uh, trade and other mutually beneficial arrangements with the Israelites. And they slowly lulled and seduced the Israelites into letting their guard down and eventually, um, you know, even convincing them that this was better than what God had had in mind. This was, this was clearly a beneficial relationship. But then when the time was right, the Philistines flipped the script on them, right? They had gotten cozy with the enemy and then were surprised when it backfired. And so, they are lamenting. They long to experience a restored relationship with their God and the deliverance and provision that accompany it. Now, if we're honest, uh, you and I, we long for this very same thing as well. You know, as I was thinking, um, you know, this week, how I would make a connection, I guess, between Israel and the text and, and us today, something that Phil had said in his sermon last week really struck me and was rolling around in my head. You know, he said that even as Christians, uh, there are areas of our lives that remain unevangelized. That's what he said. You know, and that makes us just like the Israelites in this text, right? There are enemy strongholds. There are uh, entire areas of our lives that are that are untouched, that are unaffected, that are unchanged by the gospel. And we try to keep them that way, right? Because we believe the lie that we can have what they promise, right? Security, comfort, uh, pleasure, material gain. We think that we can have those things and have all the benefits of a right relationship with God at the same time. Like Israel, we fail to maintain the freedom that was given to us and we need to be delivered again and again. And like Israel, we need to repent, right? And so Samuel says in verse three, if you are returning to the Lord, it's that word returning is the word that we sometimes translate as repent. 
If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, he says, here's what you need to do. And this is the second point, the anatomy of repentance, all right? Here's what repentance actually looks like. So first three, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So get rid of idols, turn to the Lord and worship him alone, okay? You see, Israel's problem was that they had, they had restored the ark to an appropriate location, right? They had consecrated a priest for it. They had reinstated the uh, rituals and all the things that came along with it. And these were all promising things. They looked good externally. Only one problem. They were still worshiping foreign gods on the side. You see, they had become so blind to their own sin that they were participating in, in pagan fertility cults that involved ritual prostitution and still wondering why God wasn't pleased with them. And so Samuel says to them, and almost ironically, if you are ready to repent, right? If you're actually returning to the Lord with all your heart now, get rid of those idols, right? You cannot worship both. It is a lie, right? The Lord of heaven and earth will not share his throne, especially not with these lifeless, powerless chunks of wood and rock. And so the first step of repentance is to turn away from idols. But it's not enough to simply turn away from something, right? We have to turn toward something in its place, right? Why is that? We are designed for worship, right? We're designed to orient ourselves around that which we prize above all else. If we turn from one thing at our center, a vacuum is left that will be filled simply by the next thing that comes along, right? We will always worship something. And so what does Samuel say? He says, put away idols and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He says, fix your eyes or fix the eyes of your heart even on the one who can actually deliver you and who always follows through on his promises. That is what you were made for. That's what you and I were made for. Right? We were created to be in relationship with our creator, to orient our entire lives around him in uninterrupted worship. You know, um, and this one's maybe for the kids, but <laughs> I find it fascinating. <laughs> Have you ever seen uh, one of those time-lapse videos of sunflowers uh, tracking the sun throughout the day and then you know, going back? Um, I don't know a lot about this, but <laughs> I did some reading. Um, and it seems as though... Um, it seems, it's believed that they do this in order to ensure uh, maximum attraction to pollinators uh, for the largest possible window of time each day by, by keeping the, the face of the bloom as warm as possible, I guess. Um, at any rate, <laughs> if it's true... <laughs> then in order for a sunflower to flourish, right, in order for it to be 
all that it was created to be and to do all that it was created to do, it needs to daily orient itself and reorient itself constantly to the sun. You see, and this is how we are designed to relate to the Lord. Right? And so Samuel instructs Israel to reorient themselves to the Lord. Right? And to their credit, we see in verse 4 that they respond uh, immediately by putting away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and serving the Lord only. You know, Samuel then gathers them on a hilltop where they, uh, it says they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. All right, that's verse six. So what's going on here? Well, one of the reasons uh, that people worshiped Baal in the ancient uh, Near East was because it was believed that he was responsible for uh, the rains, right? And in an arid climate, uh, water is precious and scarce and could be hard to come by uh, in certain seasons. And droughts could be deadly, right? Um, and so the idea of drawing precious water uh, and pouring it out before the Lord is an outward display of a renewed commitment to trust in the Lord to provide what they needed and not to look elsewhere for it. Right? And, and similarly, fasting conveyed this, this deep sense of dependence on God alone. All right? And then in verse 6 again, we see, lastly, uh, verse 6 here. Yes, and they say, we have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so lastly, they make this verbal confession of their sin against God. They own it. Okay, so things look good, right? They seem to have done everything that Samuel had instructed them to do. Uh, it would seem that their repentance is complete, right? But don't expect the enemy to give up their ground without a fight. Right, And I've always loved verse 7 of this text um, because here you see that when the Philistines hear that uh, Samuel has gathered Israel together at Mizpah for this little revival, for this little prayer meeting, um, for this little reorientation session, right? Um, they know what's going on. Right, And they, they know they have to go and deal with this right away. See, they remember what it was like when uh, Israel's God was on their side. Right, When he led them into the promised land originally, uh, he went ahead of them and defeated their enemies for them. Right, And so, so they know what can happen when Israel's God shows up. And they can't allow that to happen this time. And so they, they immediately rise up to put this down. Now, Israel, on the other hand, they seem to have a lot less faith. Um, when they hear that the Philistines are coming, they are terrified, right? And they, they, they're convinced that they're going to be destroyed by the Philistines. And so they're pleading with Samuel. You know, we see in verse 8, is do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. All right. So the tension is ratcheting up here, right? You can feel it. They're surrounded. They're on this hilltop. There's nowhere to go, right? No weapons, no way of defending themselves. Philistine armies closing in on all sides. It seems, at least from a human perspective, that there is no way out of this one. 
Which brings us to our third point. The promise of repentance. All right, let's go back to verse three one last time. The service is so, uh, so rich and instructive. All right, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asteroid from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. All right, Samuel's call to repent comes with a promise, right? If they truly repent, God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines, he says, right? And this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, right? Because this is a promise that is repeated all throughout the Old Testament, right? So uh, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Right? Zechariah 1 verse 3 says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And Joel 2, in the middle of a, a very grim prophecy of judgment, all right, even there, God says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. So Samuel sacrifices a lamb as a whole burnt offering, and he cries out to the Lord for Israel. And we see in verse 9, the Lord answered him. Right? The glory of the Lord returns in that moment to Israel. All right? And he does so in unmistakable fashion. Right? Our text says that just as the Philistines, they're, they're right there. Just as they draw near to attack, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. I have no idea what that means. Uh, there are a lot of different theories, but honestly, the image that is conjured up in my mind is when uh, God comes down on Mount Sinai uh, to enter into covenant with the Israelites after the Exodus, right? And the whole mountain is, is trembling and shaking and... Uh, there's this dark cloud covering it and there's thunder and lightning from inside the cloud and the people are all terrified, right? That's what I imagine is happening here, all right? And, and all I know is that the Philistines clearly understood what was happening because they lose their minds in panic, right? And the Israelites pick up the weapons that they've dropped and they chase them out of their land, driving them all the way back, and they reclaimed the cities that the, the Philistines had stolen and all the land that they had lost. All right, so verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. See, Samuel sets up a stone a stone monument and names it Ebenezer. Um, and of course, this is where the lyrics from one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fountain, Earth, a blessing which we began the service singing, 
Um, this is where those lyrics come from. Samuel sets up this stone monument and he calls it Ebenezer, which in Hebrew means stone of help. Right? And he sets it up to be a reminder to God's people every time they pass by that God always keeps his promises. Right? He is the faithful one. No matter where they are at, no matter what they've done, if they truly repent, he will return to them because he has promised to do so. And you know, Samuel sets up this memorial because he knows full well that the Israelites aren't done wandering from God yet. You know, he knows that they're going to need to be reminded of this again and again and again. Right? In fact, you know, at, at the beginning, I said that this is one of a collection of stories uh, of deliverance in the Old Testament. Right? The whole Old Testament is a record of Israel's wandering from God, getting into trouble, repenting, crying out to God for help, and then being delivered again. Right? Over and over and over again. And we are no different. Right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, how do we know that God will accept us back the 10th or the 100th or the 10,000th time? You know, look back at verse 10. There we see that it's while Samuel is offering up this lamb as a whole burnt offering that the Lord answers him. This lamb was a representation of the worthy lamb that was to come. Right? Jesus Christ. And when Jesus found himself in his own hour of terror, alone on a hilltop, enemies all around, he cried out to God for deliverance and was forsaken so that you and I would never be. You see, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus is the guarantee that when we turn to God in true repentance, no matter how far we've wandered, no matter how many times, no matter what it is that we've been chasing after, he will deliver us from the clutches of the enemy. And it's because of this that we can sing those words week after week and rest in the full confidence that God delights to answer this prayer. Pray with me. Father, we, we are so prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. Lord, we know it's true. But we thank and praise you for the promise that we have in Jesus Christ that if we simply turn back to you in faith, that we simply throw ourselves on your mercy that you will come through no matter what, time after time after time. 
Lord, you are far more good to us than we deserve. Far, far more good to us than we deserve. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.